In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart App is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh. That is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers. To hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. This hour, we'll talk with two actors, one with a legendary film career, the other who helped redefine television. Thank you. Earlier this year, I spoke with actor and director Dustin Hoffman, as part of the Turner Classic Movie Film Festival in Hollywood. At the festival, we screen some of the greatest films of all time and then discuss them in front of an audience. We decided to show this movie about Lenny Bruce at 11.30 in the morning. We're going to show Tootsie at midnight. <laughs> we thought we'd mix it up a bit here at the TCM Festival. And, uh... In 2015, we selected Lenny, the 1974 film in which Hoffman portrays the groundbreaking but troubled comedian and social critic Lenny Bruce, who had died just eight years prior of a drug overdose while battling ongoing obscenity charges. Lenny, shot in black and white by director Bob Fosse, was nominated for six Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director for Fosse, Best Actress for Valerie Perrine, and Best Actor for Dustin Hoffman. We're all the same schmuck. <laughs> <laughs> and it just cracks me up that we try so desperately to be unique when we're all the same Cat Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, me. You when you make films like this, uh, I mean, you've worked, you made so many great films and worked with so many great directors. Was Fosse someone, was that a goal for you too, to work with Fosse? No. <laughs> How was it to work with Fosse? Tough. <laughs> Tough. Tough. Uh, uh, Bob was a, uh, originally a choreographer, and choreographers uh, don't have dancers coming up to them saying, what's my motivation? <laughs> <laughs> they, dancers do what they're told. Right. You know, he tried uh, to be, in a sense, to uh, collaborate, but it was tough for him, and it was tough for me. We had a tough time. You, does he like to do a lot of takes? Uh, yes, both yeah. of us did. The script, I thought, was problematic, so I, I wasn't that anxious to do it. We went into rehearsal with the principal actors with the wonderful Valerie Perrine. Uh, extraordinary performance. And uh, with Valerie, myself, and you know, Jane Minor, and I think Stanley Beck, we're in New York in a room, and it's going rough, uh, the rehearsal, and after five days, we started on Monday after five days, we were rehearsing routines, we were rehearsing scenes, and on Friday, Bob Fosse says, we don't have a, a, a movie, we don't have a script. 
see you on Monday. First two weeks or three weeks. And we thought it was going to be shelved. Went home and came back Monday, and he says, I solved it. And he interspersed it. He says, I'm going to intersperse it with interviews, because these scenes, there's no connective tissue to them. They don't connect. So Stanley Beck, who was wonderful and my manager, uh, Valerie Pete, thank you. Uh, uh, Stanley and I were close friends since we were beginning actors. Uh, and Valerie Perrine and uh, Jan Minor are going, I think that's all it is, isn't it? Those three are going to be interviewed throughout the movie, and, he'll, he, and I'll have an easier time of shooting it. Now, when, when you make a film like this, and, or any of the films you've made, I should say, do you have any kind of unique relationship or a specific relationship with the cinematographer, Surtees? This film was nominated for six Academy Awards and in every one of the major categories you would imagine, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, uh, Best Screenplay and Cinematography for Surtees, who made his reputation shooting a lot of Clint, Clint Eastwood's films for many, many years. Bob Surtees was one of the great cinematographers, Robert Surtees. He was the cinematographer of The Graduate. Bruce is his son. Is his son, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, we were good So you friends. work with the father and son tandem. Yes. <laughs> so when you shoot a film, do you have a specific relationship with cinematographers when you make a film or no? No, I don't. Uh, I don't want to know uh, where the camera is in terms of... Uh, I do ask about lenses sometimes if I want my hands to do something. And I say, where are you cutting? Where's your bottom frame? Because if, it, if it's here, uh, also I'd have to have my hands up here to have it in the shot. Other than that, I don't really want to know. It's interesting that you, you say that, Alec, because one of the things I objected to with, with Bob is that he posed me. And when you see it, it's gorgeous. So he was right and I was wrong. <laughs> but, you know, I'd be up there and I'd work so hard on these routines. Uh, I had never seen Lenny Bruce. Bob had never seen Lenny Bruce. Uh, Mike Nichols, who I talked to uh, before I did it, because he'd done The Graduate, he and Elaine May were acting uh, upstairs uh, on Sunset Boulevard. Was it called a duplex or something? Mm -hmm. a nightclub. And Lenny Bruce was downstairs. And in between their acts, they would come downstairs and watch Bruce. Because no comedian, they said, would do a whole show improvising. You know, sometimes you do two minutes, three minutes, and the rest is your, is your stuff. But Lenny would come out and not know what he was going to say. Uh, I think uh, the only two comedians I know uh, since Lenny that, that do that, one was Rob. One was Robin Williams, and uh, the other one was a wonderful Billy Connolly, and neither of them uh, many times would just, they would just go, uh, and that's, that takes a lot. What was the question? <laughs> um, the, um, Sorry. We were talking about cinematographers, and... Oh, you so, yeah, so he would pose me, and I worked hard. I got the 33 RPMs that Lenny had made. That's what we called them then. We didn't call them vinyls. And uh, I'd lay down on the floor, and I would play. I had three months. I had about three months, and I did every, uh, you know, I wrote down uh, longhand every single line he said in all the records. And he, even the ones he did over, he would always deviate, and I would write them down, and then I would go to Bob, uh, Fossey and I'd say, geez, I like what he did here because he used these sentences or he used that. And 
I was promised, and I think that's what I got so upset about, that I would be able to shoot it, we were gonna shoot it, and I think that's what Bob wanted, we were gonna shoot it in different clubs uh, in Florida, and with live audiences, and that's what I wanted. I wanna be able to really feel like I'm doing it with a real audience, and he'll have whatever, three, four cameras at once. He agreed, and that's what we were supposed to do, and then it's probably money wouldn't allow it. So it was quite laborious sometimes to do these uh, routines over and over again, and he would tilt the camera. He would go, he'd be like where you are, and I'd be on the stage. He'd say, okay, now look a little bit this way, now look up, now look down. Okay, now do the routine from here to here. And, you know, it kind of broke my heart because I was trying to be the guy. You know, Fosse is, is a, was a great, great artist. And uh, it's funny because I just saw a, a film recently with, uh, that Alfred Hitchcock directed with Cary Grant. And uh, Cary Grant said he'd never work with Hitchcock again after the first picture because they didn't get along because right. Hitchcock didn't like to collaborate. But then they made up and they made more movies. And but I'm you sure say that, that, that uh, Lenny Bruce was not someone you had been a fan of or had a no, big I, awareness of before the I, film or you had? No, no. I just I was in New York. I just never saw him. Uh, we couldn't have, uh, you know, I mean, before I was uh, successful, we couldn't afford to go to nightclubs, right. you know, they were, they were, it was yeah. expensive. And uh, uh, I, I love, uh, the jazz is what's so extraordinary. I, I was next to you. Jazz never dates. <laughs> jazz is the same now as it was then. It's just, God, I, Beautiful story. Oh, and, uh, and I had time. Uh, no, I didn't, I had never seen him. I had never seen, I don't think, any comedian. I didn't go to nightclubs much. And I went out to L.A. because someone said to me, if you want to know Lenny Bruce, uh, you got to go see Sally Marr, his mother, who, who was alive. And I went. She was very friendly. Uh, she introduced me to one of his best friends who we used to shoot up with. And he, in turn, introduced me to friends of Lenny. And I had a tape recorder, you know, like a wall and not a wall and like a pearl tape recorder. And I taped everything, and she says, you want to go to Vegas? Because they're all there, all his friends, Buddy Hackett, other people. And I said, oh my God, yes. And I was taking all these notes. It was the best time of research I ever had. They all said the same thing, uh, except Buddy Hackett. Um, uh, they said, you know, you know Broadway, Danny Rose, that thing that Woody Allen did, you know? And they used to get together, the comedians, Lenny and these guys, when they were you know, certain whether it was, I don't know, Cantors or, uh, and they said they'd sit around and do what they did in, in uh, Broadway, down, uh, you know, tell jokes, and they'd suddenly look around, and Lenny uh, was always very quiet, and suddenly he's gone, because he was a shy guy, apparently, and he's gone, and they look around, they don't know where he is, and then they find him in the kitchen, talking to the people that work in the kitchen, the help. He loved to just talk to the people and, and ask questions and find out stuff. I think he originally, this is the stuff I had heard, uh, they kind of say it in the movie, the musicians were more important to him than the audience. Because when you do show after show after show, he, if you notice, the musicians are always sitting like that, you know, because they... Racing with the moon. Yes. I saw you do that. Of Vaughn Monroe, <laughs> and uh, and Lenny uh, Lenny felt that if he could crack up the musicians, 
then he was getting somewhere. I think he wanted to be uh, in Hollywood. Be, he wanted to be an actor also, I had heard. You shot this movie where? We shot a lot of it in Florida. The it, nightclubs, the stage work? Yeah, one nightclub, basically, I think. The, the scene when we were sitting next to each other, the scene up there where I'm in my raincoat and... Uh, uh, and you pointed came, out to me. Yes. When I came back after my three months, I had all this stuff to give Bob. You got to put this in. You got to put that in. You got to put that. And the one thing that he kept was that scene. And the reason he did is when I was memorizing, it was in a, you know, this is before the kind of media, you know, you had all the cell phones and all this texting. I, some guy heard I was doing the movie. And he had been a student uh, somewhere in Chicago. And he sent me, found out my, my business address in New York, and he sent me a cassette. And I played it, word for word. It's that scene. And I got pissed off at, at Bob because when he, he shot the master from upstairs, right in the back, and when I saw it, I said, you didn't cut in, you didn't cut in. He says, no. So that's eight minutes you know, of being up there just in one shot. One shot. And again, he was, he was right. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, nice of you to admit that, actually. <laughs> it's very generous. I you. admit a lot of stuff 40 years later. <laughs> <laughs> now, but but do, you think, do you think in your, I mean, obviously you're someone who when you, uh, I mean, I don't believe anything I read, but I mean, but, but uh, you no, I really people. don't. Me of all people, I really uh, I try to minimize that in my life if I can. But, but, the, um, but, but for you, obviously, you know, very fastidious and very, very, lots of questions and lots of seeking and so forth in the work you were doing. And, and what do you think that comes from in terms of all the films you've made from Graduate on into Cowboy and everything like that, where you just seem so, what's the word? I mean, you're so... Jewish. Uh, is that it? I'll convert if that's, the, if it's that simple. I'm going to convert tomorrow if that's what's going to get me into your stratosphere. But, oh, yeah. but, the, but, but, but the thing is, you, you just seem like you always have something to prove. Yes. A lot of people got where you got, and they did what you did, and you scored with these performances, and the originality. But then you keep going, and you still feel like you have... Did you feel that way? You still had something to prove again and again and again? What drove you? I guess the same thing that still drives me. Kobe Bryant was uh, interviewed recently. It was before he you know, had to step out for the season because he hurt himself. I, I saw the interview, and I wrote it down. I told my son Jake, uh, it was basketball. Same question, you know all these years of great basketball playing, and you still spend so much time practicing and playing, whatever, why? And he said, I guess for the challenge of every day. It's a beautiful sentence. <laughs> I, do, uh, I have only one slight personal connection to Lenny Bruce, and that, and that is that Marvin Worth was a dear friend yes. of mine. He died in 1998. The producer. He produced this film. He produced uh, Malcolm X with Spike. He produced a lot of great... And he was Bruce's manager. Uh, Marvin Worth, who was from Brooklyn, and his wife, Joan, they were from Brooklyn, and he had the, one of the heaviest New York accents I've ever heard in my life. His voice was down here. He had a very heavy accent like this. 
And he said to me, I'm going to revive Lenny on Broadway, and I want you to do play Lenny. I go, what? And he said, uh, he goes, I got a thousand hours of tapes of Lenny. I got th- Julian Barry. We got so much material of Lenny's. He says, there's so much stuff we can put in there. Now, don't worry about that. It's all going to work like a charm. And I go, and he goes, and you, Dusty, he calls you Dusty. Dusty's not the only one who can play that part, by the way. He's not the only person who can play that part. I'm like, uh-huh, sure. And he goes, and he goes, uh, he goes, and I go, but what about the other thing? He goes, what other thing? I go, what about the other thing? He goes, what other thing? What other thing? What other thing? I go, I'm not Jewish. He said, you're from Long Island, right? I said, yeah. He goes, you're, you're halfway there. The rest of it will take care of itself. Don't worry about it. He would have been wonderful. (laughs) But when you did this film, how involved in your films were you before, then, later, in the casting? Oh, I have to tell you, I'm glad you asked me. It's another example of Fosse's genius, uh, is that I met Honey Bruce. uh, And... uh, uh, Which came first? I met... He cast Valerie Perrine before he met Honey Bruce. And then he met her, and then I met her, we didn't, you know, not together. And I couldn't believe Honey Bruce, that Valerie was the reincarnation of Honey Bruce. Oh. Literally. I mean, it could have been like mother and daughter. I was, he, and I said, Bob, you, must, you had to have met, met uh, Honey Bruce bef- uh, before you cast Valerie. He says, no. It was just this intuition. I had nothing to do with any of the casting. Except, all, except, all your films, you were that oh, way. Oh, all of, except Stanley. I, he was nice enough to, to have Stanley in it for my manager. And all my films, uh, yeah. I mean, The Graduate, uh, they've been trying for two years uh, to cast it. And uh, Catherine Ross and myself were the last two to screen test after two years, and I heard that they were sitting in the screen room, not particularly excited about our screen test. And I says, well, either we go with them or we don't do it. And it was that kind of a that They've said that in interviews. I think Larry Terman said that, the, the producer. And uh, Midnight Cowboy, uh, he, uh, he cast, uh, he didn't cast John Voight, he cast some someone else, and they wouldn't let him out of his contract. And after that happened, I said, please see my friend John Voigt. We weren't close friends, but we had been off Broadway together. And he says, no, John Sessinger said, he read for it, and he doesn't have that Texas accent. He was from Yonkers. I says, yeah, but he's an actor. He can get it, you know. <laughs> and John immediately went down to Texas, forgot where, with a tape recorder, and spent whatever time and came back and, and uh, read for it, and he got the part. But he was uh, second choice. Kate Jackson was the first choice for Kramer versus Kramer. She was in Charlie's Angels, and they were saying, oh, the film will pay back itself before we start shooting, because they, they were so popular. And then the studio wouldn't let her out. So I kept telling them about this Meryl Streep I had heard about. <laughs> uh, and they, saw, and they saw her. So there's been a few I've suggested. I've, I've never uh, d- demanded or, you know, I don't, I don't think that works, actually, yeah. unless you're directing or producing. Well, some people, some people, they have these approvals of casting, and they, and they, uh, they utilize that in whatever way. 
And then there's other people who they just don't get involved. They just like they just let that all take care of itself, and the, it doesn't really change what they do, you know. Duval and Hackman and I knew each other from the early days. They're much older, and um, <laughs> and uh, we never worked together. And uh, suddenly, I'm doing this thing a few years ago. We're shooting in New Orleans, a runaway jury, and I have a I think a supporting part, and Gene Hackman has a leading part in it. And the director finds out that we knew each other. We went to the Pasadena Playhouse together until he got kicked out <laughs> after three months for not having any talent. And, uh, oh my God, you guys know each other for all this time? 30 years, yeah. We gotta do a scene. So they wrote a scene. It's, it's one of the last scenes in the movie. It takes place in a public bathroom. It's like an eight-page dialogue scene. And afterwards, it was the last thing they shot in the movie. It's over. And Gene and I say, let's go out and get drunk. And uh, we go to an Italian restaurant in New Orleans, and we're getting drunk. And Hackman says, were you scared? I said, I was so scared, man. I thought, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forget my lines. He said he felt exactly the same way. You know, because you are what you are at the beginning. You don't really change. We were unemployed actors for 10 years. And he said to me, one of the great things I ever said, we were this close to each other. He says, do you, do you feel the same way I do after you finish a movie? And he, he probably had made 120 movies. Uh, I said, what? Do you feel like you'll never work again? <laughs> yeah, of course. Every single time, that yeah. that's it. My conversation with Dustin Hoffman continues after the break. You can hear from other actors in the Here's the Thing archives, like Julianne Moore, who shares her special technique for getting ready to play a scene. I'm very chatty. I like mm -hmm. to talk all the way up to action. I do. I do. And if you can't talk to me, I'm really disappointed. Then I get lonely. And I don't want to be lonely when I'm working. Yeah. I want to be with my buddy. Talk to me. I want to talk to me. Talk Let's to me. You're my friend. Let's be buddies. Talk to me. What'd you do this morning? What'd you have for dinner last night? What are you doing later today? Are you cold? Do you like that sweater? Do you like my sweater? What are you doing? Action. Acting. I love it. That's my favorite oh, part. <laughs> then you get this great connection with another human being. And then the scene is like, poof, comes alive. Take a listen at heresthething.org. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. 
With eight hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com slash fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com slash FITS. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Dustin Hoffman has been nominated for the Oscar for Best Actor seven times. He's won the award twice. Actors strive for depth and range in their work. Dustin Hoffman makes this appear effortless. There's obviously roles you played, like Kramer versus Kramer, and All the President's Men, and you seem, it's, I don't know what word to use, it seems closer to who you are, your voice and your appearance and your, the psychologics of it. You're playing, playing a contemporary character, you're not playing somebody with some disability or what have you, it's not Rain Man or someone who's damaged and broken like Cowboy and so forth like that. But you've done both. There's a, there's a theatricality to the roles and a vividness to them, and you're not afraid to do that. Where does that come from? From being in the theater? Yeah, I mean, I where are you from? Long, I, thought, I told you, I'm from Long Island. Oh, you're from, from Long Island. I'm from Long Island. So how? No, Long Island. First of all, I wish we lived in the same city. <laughs> how old were you when you started studying act? 22. And when they sent you out, they send you out for certain kinds of parts? Yeah. Y- young leading men? Yeah, or? young guys who you know, cried a lot or whatever. Oh. <laughs> I'm the short Jew and uh, still with some acne, and I come to New York in 1958 to study. And they always said leading men, young leading men, uh, juveniles, character juveniles. That's what I was designed as. I couldn't get an agent. And that's just code for Semitic. You know, because in those days, the leading man was white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, and the ethnic person was a character juvenile or character ingenue. It really was that way. Anyway, so I went out a few times I could, you know, go to open auditions, because if you're not equity, then you can't go to a a regular audition. And you can't go to a regular audition until you get your equity card. You can't get an equity card until you get a job, so, you know, catch 22. So the few times that I could go, it was the character uh, juvenile. And by hook or crook, uh, Nichols casts uh, Catherine Ross and I in The Graduate. And uh, I'd been just starting to get somewhere off Broadway doing you know, my own style of stuff, a hunchback German gay guy with a limp. You know. <laughs> First thing that I got mentioned for uh, in, the, in, in the New York Times. And uh, Nichols had heard about it, and, uh, and I got the screen. You're not kidding. You played a hunchback German, gay... German homosexual, they called them, with a limp. Ronald Ribbon. What was the production? Harry, Noon, and Night, and the other actor was... Uh, 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 what's his name? Joel... Joel, Joel Gray. Joel Gray. Sorry, Joel. Uh, yes, that was uh, accurate. So uh, he brings me out to test me, and I didn't want to test. I was doing, for the first time in my life, doing well off-Broadway. I won an award, and I thought, oh, I'll have a career. You know, I'll do, I'll do off-Broadway. And 
you know this as well as I do. Uh, you know, if God has, has said, look, Alec, uh, you'll never uh, be in a movie, you'll never get leading roles if you're struggling for years, you won't even be on Broadway, I will guarantee you a good part off Broadway for the rest of your life, you'd sign. You would, maybe, yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, and so would a Hackman, who moved furniture up and down, you know, six flights, and Duval, who worked midnight to eight in the post office, and I was doing waiter jobs and a little acting teaching if I could. And it's, you know, it's never changed. All, if there's actors here, you know the pain of that. Um, and uh, here he is now, taking me out to L.A. and testing. And can we do anything about his nose? I remember. <laughs> And I'm in, well, the guy is, uh, he said, you don't, and he couldn't believe it. I mean, he's the hottest director from Neil Simon uh, Broadway and also uh, Virginia Woolf, he did. Uh, there was no hotter director at that moment in time. Uh, he was Spielberg. And he said, what do you mean you don't want to do this part? I said, I read the book of Mr. Nichols. It was on the phone. He's in LA, I'm in New York doing a play. I said, Benjamin Braddock in the book, he's five foot 11 blonde hair. I says, it's Redford. I said, you don't want me. And he said, no. He says, I, I, I would like to test you. He says, you mean he's not Jewish? I says, right. It's Benjamin Braddock. <laughs> and he said something I've never forgotten. He says, well, maybe he's Jewish inside. <laughs> Years later, he's from Berlin. He, uh, Mike, he came here in the early 30s. And uh, he had his own pain because he didn't have a lot of hair, he had, had scarlet fever. And uh, <clears throat> he, 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 not too long ago, just a few years ago, I read in the paper that he never understood why he cast me. And then he finally did through an analysis or something. And he said, because I was like an alter ego of him. He felt like he was me in, uh, you know, uh, on the periphery, you know, out of it and he was casting himself, the funny looking guy. Do you know that that movie was shot? And I went back to New York to collect unemployment. It was a lot, because you know, it was 50 bucks a week, it was getting the most you could get. And they're cutting the movie. Again, I read this in the newspapers. And uh, Lawrence Terman, I think it was the New York Times, a producer, they're showing it all over the Bel Air <coughs> circuit. Beverly Hills, Bel Air, Brentwood, on the movie uh, theaters they have in the homes. And over and over again, Terman said, before it opened, and over and over again, people in the industry would come up to Larry and say, what a brilliant film you almost had if you hadn't miscast the lead. <laughs> and that was the perception. You know, it's interesting because speaking of that casting thing, he and I have had a little, uh, there was a whiff of this, of this, of my appreciation of his career. And you might not remember this, I doubt you remember this, but I go to the old Westwood Marquee Hotel because I get called to go and audition for the movie Hero. Oh, and Stephen Frears is the director and the phone rings. And this is back when I was making films in the 90s and everything and I'm lighting one off the other and I'm gonna meet this guy. And I'm like, I'm in my car. I'm like, God, oh God, God, oh God, oh God. Majors are going to go to the Westwood Marquee, and they just lay out the facts. They're like, you know, snap out of it. You're going to go to the Westwood Marquee, you're going to meet Stephen Frears, and you're going to have a meeting with Dustin Hoffman. I'm like, God, 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 God. I love this guy. I want to make this movie with 
this guy? And all of a sudden, like 20 minutes goes by, and Stephen Frears, now if you know the movie Hero, where someone commits this act, and there's a case of mistaken identity, and Andy Garcia played the other role, so there has to be this case of mistaken identity between the two actors. Stephen Frears, literally 20 minutes in, I mean, my dream is just taking flight. My wings, <laughs> I'm flying over the Westwood Marquis Hotel. I'm gonna make my first movie with Dustin Effen Hoffman. And Stephen Frears looks at me and goes, you know, I just realized that you don't look anything like Dustin at all. <laughs> And it was like, there I'm flying, all of a sudden, <laughs> he shoots my balloon, and I crash onto Westwood Boulevard, I'm dead on the highway there. I'll never forget, you talk about, yeah, I'm, 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 our dreams, our dreams, how they, how they escape us. It's but, now called the M, right? Right, right. Yeah, in Westwood. The but the, um, exactly. When you do, when you show up and you work with Schlesinger and you do Cowboy, do you, do you come up with all that and you show him? Did he help you? Did you? Cowboy, very briefly, he didn't want, it's very similar to Frears and you, he did not want to see me because he had seen The Graduate. And that's the only thing he'd ever seen me in. And he was an artist. He didn't give a shit that I was in a big hit and suddenly an instant star. He wanted the right person and he refused to see me and I heard about this. And I had read the book. I thought the uh, script was okay, it was Waldo Salt. We, he actually came in a room with, in, with John Voigt and I when we did it and he had a wall and sack tape recorder. We improvised everything. Everything, the Schlesinger was great at that. And he would go home uh, all as well and write the improvisations into the scenes that he'd already written. Anyway, he wouldn't see me and I said, please, uh, you know, I, 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 I gotta see him, he's gotta see me. And he agreed. I know we're running out of time, so I'll go quick. Uh, 42nd Street, uh, what do they call those things where you, you go and you put the quarter in? I can't remember. The automat. The automat, thank you. And uh, I, I says, "The uh, <laughs> I'm going to direct a movie of him playing a car. <laughs> you all heard it. <laughs> go ahead. And I used to go there, and we all did, you know, two, three in the morning, whatever, uh, and uh, get coffee, whatever. And it was all kind of trance uh, uh, people there. And I said, I, uh, I'll meet him in the automat, and I want to do it about one or two in the morning because, you know, and I'll dress accordingly, which is what I did, a kind of coat like I wore in uh, that scene at Raincoat. And I didn't shave for a few days, and I greased my hair. I was auditioning. And I came in, and, and I just uh, met him there, sat there, and he looked at me, and he looked at, you know, sparsely crowded, you know, uh, people around. He says, oh, he says, yes, I think you'll do quite well. <laughs> <laughs> so the voice and all of it, you just, Throw that out there. You come up with that. Oh, it, well, yeah, you keep trying. You're going to meet my friend, though, Daniel. My friend, though, Daniel. You're too kind. Where do you find this? Oh, you get desperate. Um, <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. That's my problem. I wasn't desperate enough. <laughs> no, no. And uh, we're, we're, re, we're rehearsing. And then uh, Schlesinger has to uh, shoot some exteriors before we start shooting uh, principal photography because he's got winter and he needed winter. So John Voigt and I go and he says, well, you don't have to talk. I says, I don't have a character. I don't have a voice. I said, I can't. I barely have a walk. No, we'll have the camera across the street. You guys just got to walk. We're not starting for a month, but we just need the weather. You know, the smoke coming out, whatever it is, right? 
Okay, so John Voigt and I were walking, and John Voigt and I knew each other for years. I was the assistant director, which is like, you know, sharpening pencils in off-Broadway when he was in View from the Bridge with Bob Duvall, he was brilliant. And he was up and coming star. And, uh, and you know, we were competitive. Uh, actors are always competitive. And, uh, you know, we, if you're walking down the street, you got a script, you have a reading, or, or you did the reading, you see another actor coming over, you've always put it behind your back, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but no, it's just something, you know, because you don't want the competition. Uh, anyway, so we're across the street walking, and says, so all you have to do is walk. I says, yeah, but I'm supposed to cough. We're at that point in the movie where, you know, he's got, you're going to find out he has TB or whatever. He says, yes. Sessions says, all right, you do some coughing, do some not coughing, but you don't have to talk. I said, okay. I'm rehearsing out of panic, you know, trying on these, these, these limps or whatever. And uh, I, I said, shouldn't be shooting. We got a month to go. I haven't found them yet. And suddenly we're walking and we pause and I'm <coughs> trying to cough and I threw up. <laughs> Literally on John Voight's cowboy boots. <laughs> and afterwards, uh, Susan says, I think we've got it. Uh, you did. <laughs> and John, because he's an actor and you know, we're competitive, he, Schlesinger told me later, he went up to uh, Schlesinger and he said, John, let me just ask you something. Is he going to do that all throughout the movie? <laughs> he says, because I'm not even in the scene if he does. <laughs> well, l l let me just say this, because obviously, I, I mean, I got another 45 questions I could ask, but they do have a schedule here for the festival. But I do want to say, I mean, as, as, uh, as sappy as this sounds, on, on behalf of everybody here, I want to say, Thank you to you because uh, I, I mean, I really, from the bottom of my heart, from the bottom of my heart, you are one of the greatest movie actors that has ever lived in the history of this world. You are one of the greatest movie actors ever. And you've done so many great films. Please help me in thanking Dustin Hoffman, everyone. Dustin Hoffman has accrued a lifetime of knowledge about acting and the entertainment industry, and despite turning 78 this summer, he's now embracing a very new way to share it. He's teaching an acting class online. The description reads, quote, Dustin teaches you everything he wishes someone had taught him, unquote. You can sign up at masterclass.com. Coming up, actress Edie Falco. Sweeney Todd was one of the first things I saw where I thought, oh, I got it. Well, I don't know how, but I got it. You did feel that way. Oh my God, that one show. Look, staying healthy isn't easy. Watching your diet, hitting the gym, avoiding stress. But a good night's rest helps boost your overall health and wellness. And it couldn't be easier. The new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed is the only bed that effortlessly adjusts and responds to both of you. The result? You wake up ready for anything. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. During our lowest prices of the season, the new Queen Sleep Number 360 C2 Smart Bed is only $8.99. Only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends you new cartridges, so you never have to think about ink. 
save up to 50%. You'll pay less than $5 a month for ink and never run out again. Find out if your printer is eligible and enroll today at hpinstantink.com. Conditions apply. For details, visit hp.com slash instantinkspotify. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Edie Falco played Carmela Soprano on the groundbreaking HBO show about an Italian-American mob family from New Jersey. Falco now has two kids herself, but when she was playing Carmela, she was a single woman living in New York. In this clip, we hear Falco with the late, great James Gandolfini, who played her husband, Tony. You know what I don't understand, Tony? What does she have that I don't have? I did not carry on an affair with the cousin, and I will take a damn polygraph to that effect. I want you to leave this house, Tony. Please. I want you to leave me alone. TV Guide named The Sopranos the best television show in history. It's safe to say the role of Carmela made her, but Edie Falco didn't sense that at the start. I didn't have any sense of the gravity of what we were doing. Yeah. I might have just been because I was dumb. <laughs> I didn't realize what, you know, the, the larger themes at play there. But I just enjoyed it. And it was still a novelty to be working on something that was good, that people enjoyed, that seemed to be well-received. Yeah. yeah, that was the excitement of being on something good was still very new. And I wonder when you did the show— was it fun and pleasant? Was it really tough? Was it work? No, it was fun and pleasant because right. it was there was a lighthearted atmosphere. The writing was funny. There was a lot of really funny stuff, and it was a lot of these sort of goomba guys yeah, who were just cutting up. Felt like family to me, and and uh, very easy to be with. Did you participate in the writing of the? Did you just turn that all over? You never got involved. In that? Not at all. I was not at all interested. I had so much trust in certainly David Chase, but in all the staff that he. Carefully chosen, handpicked. I felt like they knew what they were doing. They had a much better overview of what the story was about, as opposed to what would Carmela do in here. You know, right. I just thought it was a huge relief to know that I could just let them do their thing and I would do what I was hired to do. I felt completely comfortable with that. Did they put things about you in the characters? They got, I mean, Tina Fey, when I did Thirty Rock, was someone who the moment you told a story, there it was, was an embarrassing show. anecdote. It was in the show. Absolutely, Jim said that all the time. He's like, I can't talk to anybody about anything about it. <laughs> it's going to be in the next episode. But I didn't notice it so much for my life. I, there was nothing going on in my life that was all that interesting, so I didn't see a lot of it in the scripts. But I, I, I know they like. I guess every show, to some extent, they start writing for the actors that have been hired. Like. Um, Aida's character, Aida Totoro, who played his sister, was supposed to be a very different thing. It was supposed to be more like the mom, sort of cold and calculating and unkind. And because Aida Totoro was doing it, it, it sort of morphed into this whole other, like, Parvati, that phase that she went through where she was sort of like an earth child. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they were writing based on what they perceived me to be, but I was I was not entirely cognizant of that Why do you at think the time. they hired you for that part? Because you said, I read an interview where you talked about how you went and you just relaxed and said, hey, if this happens, it happens. Right. Which we all go through. Where sure. you sometimes sit there and go, I, I can't stress about another interview. That's right. What do you think they hired you for? 
I couldn't begin to tell you. I think I think probably because of that, because I was completely non-stressed. It was a, uh, a, a script that had been bouncing around for a while, but I was doing Oz at the time, and I was working right. a lot, yes. and I kind of was all caught up in that. And it came along, and it was called Sopranos, and I thought it's about singers or something, and right. it's a you know uh, Italian American, yeah, right. Italian American uh, woman wife, and I thought that's I never get cast as that. I know who's going to get cast. I figured it's you know Annabella Shore or Marissa. Tomei or some of these women who had played parts that sort of felt similar to that, there's no better place to be in when you walk into an audition than knowing you're not going to get it and not caring. So, uh, you know, I really just sort of enjoyed myself and thought it's just another audition. And if you're in a good head, you can never not learn something from an audition. So I just went in and had fun. And you inadvertently, you present your best self when you're doing that. And I guess, I don't know, I was relaxed and I enjoyed myself. So I guess that's what they saw. I don't know. And when you got the job, was that something that was just floored you? Were you ecstatic about getting the job? Well, remember, it's so you just just a pilot you get cast for, you right. know. So at that point, it was whatever it was, two weeks of work, and it was a sum of money I had never seen before, which now seems not all that shocking. But <laughs> back in the day, it meant I could pay off my student loan, and so I was able to, with that one check, completely pay off my student loan. It was huge. It was a huge occurrence. But again, two weeks of work and then on to the next panic thing, you know, about what, what to do next. And so how soon after the pilot was shot? I think it was a year. Were you told? So you waited a year yeah. to be told this was going to move forward. And David Chase called me and said, I just want to let you know this has been picked up. This is after we shot the pilot and he said, well, nobody's going to watch this thing, but I'm proud of what we made or whatever. And uh, David was also, apparently, he put his head in his hand and said, oh, no, when he found out it was picked up, because I don't think he had intended to have to tell more about these people. I think he was trying to get a movie made, and this was almost like a spec script or something. Right. I, you this know, is a demo reel. I don't think he had anticipated this going oh on God. like this. So he was had his head in his hands. Jimmy's like, what am I doing? And I'm like, I can pay my student loan. And, you know, here it is 4,000 years later, and, and uh, just goes to show you. You wake up every day, you have no idea what anything's going to turn into. So, Well, two things that, that come to mind for me. One, I probably told you this before in, when I would run into you, but one was I never watched TV. I just didn't have time. And I hit this period toward the last probably four seasons, definitely, maybe five. I don't want to say obsession, but my fondness for you and your character. Hmm. I remember I'd watch you and go, oh, my God, I've got to be married to that kind of woman. <laughs> She's going to stick by me through thick and thin and make smart choices. Right. And she's a good partner. Right. Did you sense that when you were doing it? I loved it for that reason because it was everything that I was not, (laughs) you know. I mean, it was a—you know, I was a single woman living in New York, didn't have kids. And here I was ensconced in this life that I saw my grandparents live, you know, married with kids, deeply entrenched in a community uh, of people. Family gatherings were huge, you know. Everything that, and even with Jim, feeling like I was attached to a big man who would take care of stuff. It was a tremendously um, invigorating uh, place to inhabit while I was working. It was completely diametrically opposed to what I lived when I left the set. And for that reason, I absolutely loved it. What did you live when you left the set? The life of a single actress in Manhattan. You know, I had a relatively small apartment. I had my dog. I had my dates. But it was not... You know, at all what other women my age, let's say in the Midwest, or certainly in my family back a number of generations, was everything with you that work? Work was primary. Yeah. And work I was it. your boyfriend. It was. It and was. And you dated other guys on the side. Yes, exactly. But work was the main work commitment. Was, it was, and I was thrilled for it. Thrilled for it. 
Just loved it. How old were you when you first had a sense that you wanted to do that for a living? Seriously do it for a living? Well, I didn't know that I could ever do it for a living. I think until it, I was able to do it for a living, I thought I would just do it as after my waitressing gig, you know? It, the idea that I could support myself with it was sort of preposterous. I, um, but my mom was an actress. She did stuff at Arena Players in Farmingdale and Broad Hollow Theater in Huntington all around Long Island. But she had a job, and she would do her plays in the weekends and at night, and I sort of thought, What was oh, her job? Many different jobs, but she was a uh, she was a DJ at WGLI, was a station on Long Island. She was a copywriter, and she did a million different things. She decided she wanted a job, and she would get it. But then at night, she'd do her plays, and I thought that's what you do when you want to be an actor. How I many didn't siblings think. do you have? I've got an older brother, younger brother, and a younger sister. That's four. Four of us all told, yes. And were any of them also interested in the theater? Not at all. Even though your mother was an actress, yeah. a legit actress, and your father yeah. was a... Pa- uh, musician. Painter, artist, and he was a musician for when he was younger, but then he went on to do sculpture and painting. And, and your parents got divorced when you were how old? I have no idea, because they got divorced, and then they remarried each other two other times. So it was a very complicated childhood with that stuff. Oh, they stuff. remarried each yes. other? Yes, yeah, and then divorced and remarried and divorced, and I don't even know so what they are right now. So if you asking, because I, I want to make a movie out of this, oh, actually, God. I want to play this. They got divorced, and when they would get divorced, how long were they apart before they reunited? A matter of months? Or? No longer. It was for the first time, it was a number of years. And, you know, they kind of, the kids were pitted against each other, or the against, and then we found out that parents were sort of hanging out with each other again. It was you know, horrifying for the kids that they would suddenly get together again and then they would have a ceremony and we would witness their wedding. It was, you know, I don't know, led to some psychological issues that I'm working on as we speak. But well, we'll yeah. get to that. We'll yeah, get to right. that. And none of your siblings had the bug. They Not at all. Not, I mean, and how did you quite form- the opposite. And so, so did this become formal for you only when you go to purchase or had you done plays before you went to school? Community theater plays, nothing too, and school plays, you know, but nothing very serious. Um, and then I went to purchase first as a liberal arts person, and uh, I saw my some actor friends had gone into purchase in the, the program, and I thought I, I really wanted program, to be there. And that program had grown. Yes, each year. And now year. it's become this very estimable program yeah. on the East Coast, yeah. big time. So I auditioned and went the next year as an acting student. And did you graduate? Did you finish? I did. I did. And then when you finished, what did you do? Well, uh, do you remember the league auditions, that whole thing? So we had the league auditions, and from those auditions, I I got a part in a movie where I had to be on set the day after I graduated, and I thought, you know, what's everybody talking about? (laughs) This is so easy. I just kind of glided my way into this career. I didn't do anything for five-plus years after that, but did a movie called Sweet Lorraine that was uh, done up in the Catskills with— the guy's name was Steve Gomer, the director. How did that go? It was uh, did it drive you dreamy. forward. It, it sure was. did. Well, it was. I couldn't believe I was on a movie set. You know, it was a huge thing, and I just graduated from school, and it was crazily exciting. You know, where the heck were we? Like eight weeks up in the Catskills, I think it was, and kind of fell in love with all the boys in the show. <laughs> you know, it was like being a sleepaway camp. And I remember when my agent said, "I hope you're sitting down. You booked that movie, and." You're going to get paid more money than you have ever seen in your life. They're going to pay you $2,000 a week, <laughs> which was more money than I had ever seen in you, my had life. Had you been waitressing? Uh, not yet. I, I, uh, no, except on Long Island. I hadn't really had Right to. out of purchase, you got right the movie. Right out of purchase. So it was after the movie, the waitressing began. Oh, yes. In, in yeah. 
to try to keep up that two thousand dollar week That's income. Right. <laughs> hey, you were you, you were at the Rainbow Room. I was living. You were in the champagne counter That's at the exactly Rainbow right. Room, thinking it would be consistent. Yes, but no. What was the job for you that ended that? Like, when did you get a job and then you never went back again? You only made a living as an actress. Uh, I was waitressing at a place called Canyon Road on Seventy Seventh and First. It was the last waitressing job I had. I worked there with Paul Schulze. My friend, who has actually been on a bunch of my shows with me, my a great actor friend, and he was bartending, and I went off to do a thing called Cost of Living, a low-budget independent thing, and uh, I left, and I was about to come back to the restaurant job, and I just had one of those sort of grace moments where I thought, no, I'm, I'm not going to come back. I don't know how this is going to work. But uh, I'm not going to waitress anymore. It really was one. It was a total leap of faith. I just I'm going to be homeless. Didn't have a plan. I'm going to live in a wash machine box. Which seemed I picked out the box. Preferable to taking another order at that restaurant. So I couldn't do it anymore. So yeah, and at that I don't know. I guess um, Oz happened shortly after talk that. About maybe. That. So what was the experience like working with Fontana? Um, you know Tom, right? I, oh, I, I met him a couple forget. times. Yeah. I, I I love him. He was one of those angel guys, you know, because I had done a movie called. Laws of Gravity, and it got some attention. It played the sort of Sundance and the the uh, festival circuit. Tom saw it and decided he wanted to use me for stuff, and so he put me in um, a series called Firehouse um, about EMT workers and fire people or whatever. Then he cast me in Homicide, uh, or maybe it was the other way around. He just he kept putting me in stuff when I wasn't really working much, and then he said, I'm doing the series about... A prison, I have two parts. You can play the nun or you can play the correction officer. Which part do you want to play? I said, I'll, I'll be the correction officer. <laughs> and that was, uh, you know, he, and he just decided he was going to take care of me, and he did, and he did for many years. You, and were, in, just, you, you were in his troop. I was in his, his acting troop. troop, yeah. And I was just th- How just many seasons did you do? Of Oz? Yeah. Gosh, you know, I have no idea, actually, come to think of it. More than a couple? Yeah. I was just so crazy grateful for the work. And I remember, it was before cell phones, I remember T- uh, Terry Kinney was on the show with me, and he was the first person I ever knew who had his own phone. I just thought he was the coolest coolest thing did. going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It was fun. It was really, really fun. And it was great to have a steady gig. And then after that, what did you do? How long between that and The Sopranos? Not long. I was doing, you know, I was doing uh, Frankie and Johnny? That that was during Sopranos. I think that was during two seasons of Sopranos. But I was doing Oz, and then I was doing Sideman, a right. play that I did for a very long time. Sure. And I was doing Oz at night and Sideman during the day, and then Sopranos came in. And so I was doing – there was a period of time where I was doing sort of all three of them. And I thought – because they were so great and I couldn't say no to anything, but I was very unhappy because I was exhausted and sick uh, most of the time, screaming my voice out. And it was uh, an embarrassment of riches, but – I might have done better to say no to one of them, but be that as it may, it was uh, at a time when I couldn't imagine not doing any of those jobs. Yeah. Hello? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of how to say this. I'm going to write a book. I'm writing a memoir that's oh, coming wow. out in a year. And in the book, I've got some uh, interesting things I talk about. And one of which was I celebrated my 30th anniversary. Nice. Uh, in February 23rd of this year, I went out to Los Angeles, which is, was the scene of the crime for me. Is that the right? Uh, and can we talk about that? Yeah, of course. Yeah, are you on the record about that? Yeah, sure. Okay. I was wondering what that, how that affected your career. Well, I got sober 23 years ago, and there was really not much of anything going on at the time, and I'm grateful for that. Also because, you know, the access people have to your life nowadays. Um, I'm just glad there, none of that was going on. Nobody was interested back when I was a mess. Um, 
so I was able to get kind of squared with a lot of that stuff before, before you stepped into the spotlight. Yeah, before anything big was happening in my life. And me so too. I was very, very grateful for the timing of all that. And when you walk into a room in AA, there's not a lot of people who have 25 years. Yeah, that's How right. How many people make it that far? Yeah. I mean, they might be, when they do the hand raising thing, I'm in a room the other day in LA where there was 300 people. And there might have been like six or eight of them that had over 20 years. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. We're the, we're the <clears> old-timers <throat> now. Right. Yeah, right. We're the old-timers right. now. Is it still a part of your life? I go on my anniversary, <laughs> which yeah. was uh, last week, and just to announce it. And, and uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a Buddhist, which is where, what, I, what I do now. You are. I, yeah, I spend a great deal of time at, the, at a Buddhist center in New York where it has given my life a tremendous amount of when, when, if you richness. Don't, I'm asking, when did that enter into your life? Uh, because you're not the first person I know who has supplanted sobriety and 12-step sobriety with Buddhism or well, a Buddhist type of— there are a lot of, of crossovers. I see a lot of people yeah. that I know from both places. So I see. Yeah. Uh, like 20-something years ago, I, I inadvertently ran into a meditation class, and it was this teacher. And then I kind of wandered away, and then I kind of went back, and it was the same teacher. I thought I was going to some other thing. This happened a number of times. And then— a good five or six years ago, I went back again, and here's the same darn teacher in a different place. And uh, I've been going consistently for, I don't know, four or five years as much as I can. It feeds me in a huge way. How so? What do you get out of it? Well, it's not just sort of mumbo-jumbo spiritual kind of. It's also it's like a science of the mind, really, that was established uh, 2,500 years ago. And I, so they've got... They've got history on their side, and I see the people who spend a good deal of time there and the teacher there, they have what I want, you know, the stick with the winners thing. That, I, I love AA, but, you know, there, there are a lot of cuckoos in there. <laughs> you know, and I, I love them because I understand them, but to be in a place where there's somebody who really has something that I want is very meaningful to me. It becomes harder and harder to find that. That's huge, though. And, and, and for you, what I'm wondering, what did it give you? What did it help you deal with or manage? Or Well, single parenting is not for the faint of heart, uh, <laughs> shall I say. You know, you live for 40 years where you're the center of your universe. You know, when you want to get a massage, you go get one. And as you know, that kids enter the picture and it just it turns your whole life. I mean, you, there's nothing recognizable about it. And it was really a crash course in... in uh, not being the center of my universe anymore. So, and I didn't always handle it great. I spent a fair amount of time just not being okay with the fact that I couldn't control my environment. So a lot of it is about remaining calm, about being patient, about remembering what's important, about patience is, is I think, the biggest part of it. I, I, have, I have a short temper that people may not believe, but, you know, in, in my home environment, that. yeah, it's not pretty. So... It has helped me immeasurably with that. Describe your son. Cute. <laughs> he's, lovable. He's lovable and blonde. He's a spectacularly amazing kid, and he's been through a lot. And uh, he has some learning stuff and uh, also ADD, ADHD, and all those acronyms, um, which— you know, single parenting under the best of circumstances is difficult, but when you have a kid who's bouncing off the walls and then a kid who's not, who's getting beat up by the kid who's bouncing off the walls, it's complicated and it's difficult. So the little one difficult. is. Yeah, she's the the sort of the, the survivor. Recipient. Yes, yes. The receptacle. <laughs> Both energy. So, but, you know, she's a tough kid. She can take care of herself. Come on over here, let's play sword fight. Yeah, no, no, you're the sword. Um, he's constantly beating the crap out of her. And she's learned to kind of make the... 
make the best of it, but the fact that she has to is what you, what, what is a drag. So, um, But, you know, we all had our stuff growing up in the middle child, and, you know, everybody, we all have some order in which we were born and the difficulties we had and being the first one or the last one or whatever. And my kids' challenges are not that unusual, but, you know. I say to my daughter, my older daughter, I've said to her recently, I, I said to her, you know, to me, a god or the presence of some kind of force like that in your life manifests itself in the instincts that you have. And I said to her, the minute you get into trouble in this life, in my experience, is when you stop listening to your instincts. Mm-hmm. That's all we can do is try to get them to listen to that voice in them. Because mm-hmm. in the end, they're going to do what they're going to do. That's we, right. We can't make them do what we want to do. It's That's, painful. Boy. It's painful. Shocking, too. I mean, especially in this industry, we have so many people running around you know, telling you how great you are and, you know, making sure that every your every need is taken care of. And then you go home and your kids just couldn't care less. Your kids have no idea what who you're you asking. are. They, well, they, they do, but I think they think everybody's parents have some kind of life like this. I don't know. They're exceedingly unimpressed. But, I, you know, just to hang up their damn coat, you know what I mean? They just couldn't possibly care less the way I want the house to look and, I, you know, all that stuff that used to be so important that I'm learning slowly to let go of. There's a humanness to Edie Falco's character's No matter how tough their exterior appears, her women are vulnerable, fallible, and we can't get enough of them. You're listening to Here's the Thing, produced by Emily Botin and Kathy Russo, with Melanie Hoops, Ed Herbstman, Zach McNeese, Dan O'Donnell, Krista Ripple, Joel Werner, and Mallory Schwartz. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. The been thinking about McDonald's all day can't get it off my mind. I can already taste it. Ooh, got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some Mickey D's deal. There's a deal for every moment at McDonald's. Right now, get two of your favorites for just $3.50. Mix and match a classic McChicken, a hot and spicy McChicken, or a juicy McDouble. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. This season on Strange Arrivals, three men enter the forest to investigate what they think must be a plane crash. When we saw the lights, we all hit the ground. But it's not a plane crash. I'm standing here wondering, what is that? It's something very different. The only thing I could see was this black craft with white light coming out of the bottom of it. Find Strange Arrivals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And learn more at GrimAndMild.com.